Welcome to the Compliance Expert Radio Show, your source for the latest information on corporate governance, internal audit, SOCs, and risk management services. With in-depth interviews, discussions, and insights from leading experts. Hosted by Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum. This is the Compliance Expert Radio Show. And now, here is your host, Sonia Luna. All right. Hi, I'm Sonia Luna, CEO of Aviva Spectrum, a financial transformation and compliance consulting firm headquartered in sunny Los Angeles, California. I'm also a speaker and writer on topics like financial close transformation, internal audit, and accounting-related matters. My guest today, which I'm super excited, is Darren Marble. Darren is the CEO of CrowdfundX. It's a pioneering financial marketing firm servicing corporations and entrepreneurs across a wide mix of industries and geographies. The company helps clients to effectively architect and execute strategic equity and rewards-based crowdfunding campaigns that build brand equity and drive growth. Darren was recently elected to the board of directors with the Crowdfunding Professional Association and is the co-founder of the Crowd Invest Summit. He's a compelling public speaker. He has been presenting to such organizations as the Stanford Graduate School of Business, USC Marshall School of Business, and the Next Gen Crowdfunding Conference, just to name a few. His insights have been featured in Forbes, the LA Business Journal, Bankless Times, and PC Magazine. Today we're gonna be discussing crowdfunding and some of the common mistakes issuers make, and more importantly, how to avoid them. Welcome, Darren. Thanks for having me, Sonia. It's a real pleasure to be on your show. Great. I've been really looking forward to this interview. So we can offer our audience something very new, fresh, relevant about the best practices in crowdfunding, and more importantly, the key mistakes that they absolutely need to avoid. So, Darren, let's get into it. What are the biggest mistakes issuers are making when they're pursuing equity crowdfunding campaigns? Well, it's a great question, Sonia. And in the context of Regulation A+, which allows private companies to raise up to $50 million annually uh, and gives them the abil ability to generally solicit, the biggest mistake we've seen made so far is that too many young companies, uh, premature companies, are opting for this um, this type of fundraising and they're not prepared for it and they're really setting themselves up to fail. And so that's part of what, you know, our goal at CrowdfundX has been, um, you know, not only with our clients, but at in, in the industry at large where we often speak is to really educate issuers that regulation A plus, while it sounds attractive uh, and the idea that you can raise up to 50 million is very compelling for any company that wants to raise capital. The truth is that, most companies are actually not going to be a good fit for Reg A+. And what we've seen in the last 18 months since this type of um, capital raising has become legal in the United States is that the types of companies that are destined to succeed or at least have a better shot at success are consumer products companies that have paying customers, that have passionate fans, reservation holders, social media followers. Those are businesses that uh, you know, tend to have products that may be inherently easy for the average American to understand. 
And of course, the most likely investor in your company is always going to be your customer. And certainly when you have paying customers, those are people who uh, are obviously getting value, hopefully from your product and, and know your brand. And so it's intuitive that those companies uh, have been most successful. And yet we've seen, Sonia, a lot of pre-revenue, pre-product startups uh, find attorneys that will take a fee to file a Form 1A with the SEC, and then they're, they're kind of scratching their heads when they fail or, or struggle to raise, you know, even tens of thousands of dollars because they were really never a good fit to begin with. So, so the, some of the common lessons here is don't go too early. In other words, make sure there's enough maturity, seasoning, if you will, but more importantly, it's that following, it's that compelling argument that you have enough people, some pairs of eyes uh, that are watching what this, you know, the company is doing, and more importantly, if you have paying customers, you have a better story to tell the market why you need to raise even more money because, look, not only do you have existing customers, but look how much growth you can with future customers or a future let's say, fan base. That's very interesting because, um, you know, not all IPOs are successful either, but by the time they get to a traditional IPO, they are definitely, on average, in terms of number of years been in business, at least five to seven years within that range of in business. So they have, it's not a business plan. It's like they've actually been there, done that. And I wanted to switch gears a little bit about strategies. Okay, what then what are the key strategies that you have seen that are successfully funding Reg A plus campaigns? So another great question. I mean, look, by definition, equity crowdfunding is the online method of capital raising. So if we start with online, I think the two key strategies that are really critical for success in this space are storytelling and digital marketing. And both of these are easier said than done. Uh, storytelling is absolutely critical to the success of any marketing campaign, yet ironically it's also one of the most overlooked aspects of how issuers ha have attempted uh, to, to run these campaigns. So what does that mean? When you're raising capital from the crowd, and no, the, the crowd could be your customers, fans, new constituents, you have to tell a story that is authentic and you have to tell a story that emotionally inspires people. And Sonia, what we've learned, and this is really interesting, and a lot of the capital markets folks don't totally get this, is that the average American, believe it or not, uh, may be more interested in investing in a company uh, whose vision, mission, and values align with their own than being motivated by actually generating a financial return or making money. And so this is a, a new concept for a lot of um, you know, people on the East Coast, investment banks, broker-dealers, you know, typically when you invest, your goal is to generate a return. But in this case, we're seeing a lot of what's called passion investing. And th these are people who want to invest in a company they believe in. They want to put their money uh, behind a CEO who they believe in. And so, therefore, the story needs to be an authentic emotional story that sells the issuer's vision, mission, and values. So if they're able to identify that emotional hook and produce that story at a high production value, they then need to identify the likely investors in the deal and figure out how to most effectively and cost effectively reach that audience. And so we've seen in the past 18 months, uh, certain digital marketing strategies have really been uh, more effective than others. Email marketing has been very effective when done right. Uh, paid media has been exceptionally effective when done right. And a, a quick example of, of well, what, what kind of paid media works so, you know, we as, as a financial marketing firm 
we're big fans of Facebook. We think it's an incredibly powerful advertising platform. And it gives us the ability to target likely investors in a deal. And the way we do that is once we have maybe 500 investors uh, in an offer that, that have actually subscribed, we can take the emails of those investors, Sonia, load them into Facebook, and then Facebook will match those emails up against the people who actually own the account and run an algorithm that assesses the demographics and taste profiles of that base of 500 people and then creates what's called a lookalike audience. And this is where the power of Facebook comes into play. Facebook creates a lookalike audience of a million people, uh, for instance, that have a similar uh, look and feel to that initial base of 500. And from there, we can run a very targeted ad buy campaign against that lookalike audience. So the theory is that once we have a little bit of data, maybe 500, 750 investors, we can then target people that have the same characteristics as that initial base. That's been one of the most effective strategies we've seen to date to help issuers identify likely investors in their deal. Wow, that's really powerful stuff to go from, uh, you know, a small, let's say, sample size and then extrapolate that and create almost like a mirror image, right, of what you want uh, out in Facebook. I mean, it seems like a very powerful matching mechanism. And then just to chime in, you know, millennials are now the largest workforce, and if you ask them – you know, when they plan to retire, it's so far in the future. So investments that they make are going to be not so much bottom line driven only. They're going to be thinking through what is what does this company do to, let's say, um, treat its employees uh, well or uh, environmental impacts, et cetera. So their mindset is different. They They truly believe that they can make a really good investment choice make some money, but that's not the main motivating factor. But the company that they're investing in, they definitely want an alignment of their values with that company. And and some of it could be environmental, social, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not the baby boomer type of investment, which is purely bottom line driven, give me the highest return on investment. And the second comment to that is there are uh, financial disclosures that the SEC gets traditional stuff, okay? Then there's a set of documents. These are disclosures that companies produce that deal with expanded climate change issues. These are uh, social uh, human rights related issues. And those disclosures go to a different set of websites. And the delta, the difference between downloads, okay, common downloads from the SEC to other websites that that have this information is anywhere from two to 300 times more downloads when people are looking for information of how a company treats its employees, the environment, social responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that delta is actually growing because we have a a different investment pool now. It's a different generation. So well, you're, you know, you're we'll see correct. where, where and I, I do want to mm-hmm. comment because you, you mentioned millennials, and, and this is a, a, a market and a demographic of people that I think businesses in general globally are fascinated by. I've seen so many studies and reports and people trying to assess their motivations and values. However, I want to make an important point. When we go out and market an issuer's offering, we're not targeting millennials. Uh, And and that's by design. So even though there is this huge market of younger people that are values driven, these are also people who may not have a brokerage account, who may have never invested, 
who may not have disposable income. So are we really going to try to overcome all of those three hurdles, which any one of those could prevent somebody, uh, let's say 22-year-old, from investing versus targeting somebody who's maybe 30 to 40 years old that has a brokerage account, uh, you know, has invested in a company, has $120,000 a year plus annual income. So it's really interesting. You know, look, if a company is out there trying to raise $10 million, let's just say, easiest and fastest way to do that would be to find one investor or one fund to write a check for $10 million. The next fastest way would be to find two investors or two funds to write a check for $5 million each and down from there. So what we're actually doing is we're strategically avoiding targeting millennials because I don't think that there's going to be a, a huge ROI trying to get thousands of younger people to chip in a hundred bucks. That's a really hard way to raise a lot of money. And interestingly, what we've seen uh, again in the last 18 months is that it's actually a slightly older uh, person that has more income, maybe is familiar with investing um, that, that is, is more likely to convert. And so we've been spending our time, uh, avoiding millennials, targeting people that have higher incomes, higher net worths, are more familiar with investing because that has been what has uh, been the more effective strategy. And I think we're going to continue to see a trend. So it, it is an interesting point you bring up, but I thought it was worth mentioning because it's actually not a demographic I think worth pursuing too aggressively in these deals. That's amazing. That's wonderful insight. And, you know, dollar for dollar, like you mentioned, ROI, it does make sense. Right. Um, what are millennials most passionate about in the current state? Do they have kids? Um, maybe, maybe not, but very few of them do. Um, they like really good food. They like food trucks. <laughs> they, <laughs> they like a that. work environment <laughs> where there's like a lot of color and, you know, cushy seats. Um, but maybe they don't have a brokerage account. So strategically, I think it makes perfect sense. And talking about where things are headed, I mean, tell us, where do you think this industry is headed in the next, you know, two to three years? Well, I, I look at it from a couple different angles. So uh, on one perspective, I think this industry is destined to grow. Um, in 2016, roughly $190 million uh, uh, was achieved in funding through Regulation A plus offerings, um, and maybe 15 deals had closed. And, you know, to a lot of capital markets people, that's a very small number. Um, but I think for our nascent industry, it's actually quite impressive. And so inevitably, we are going to see more mature, larger, savvier organizations realize that they are inherently good fits to use this securities exemption to raise capital from their fans. And then I think uh, you're going to see Regulation A-plus IPOs to the New York Stock Exchange, Reg A IPOs to NASDAQ that will add further credibility to the industry, that will also encourage larger, more established, well-known investment banks to participate. And then finally, I think at some point in the next one to two years, we will see uh, an NFL or NBA team uh, realize that they're actually the ideal candidate to run this type of campaign. And some owner whose team isn't doing so well is going to use Reg A+. Plus to offer shares to their fans in a similar way that the Green Bay Packers did so successfully, except the difference being that these shares will have a real cash value. And, and most interestingly, the $50 million that this team can raise, that's not even the primary motivation. That's the icing on the cake. The real benefit is that they're going to create uh, uh, more, more stickiness with their, their fans. They're going to see an increase in ticket sales, an increase in merchandise sales. 
um, and, and they're going to put butts in seats. So I think a deal like that will become mainstream overnight. Everyone will hear about it. So on one end, I think this industry is destined to grow. We're destined to see some massive campaign that everybody hears about that will make this industry mainstream very quickly. And then in terms of the mechanics, in terms of the deals, I think we're already in the midst of a very interesting evolution where the early winners have been consumer products companies. The next iteration is financial marketing firms like ours that can help issuers who maybe aren't a perfect fit by designing a smart marketing campaign, creating compelling content, uh, stories, and identifying the right investors. And now we're in this kind of third mode, which I'll call hybrid deal marketing, Sonia, where you have not only a, a marketing firm like ours, but we're working in parallel with a traditional investment bank that's doing a traditional underwriting and will sell a portion of that Reg A offer to institutional clients. So now we're targeting you know, not only the crowd, we're targeting institutional investors. And then I think the last phase is kind of this data-driven future where you know, there may be databases that are highly segmented where you know, the, the database knows so much about you, Sonia, you're only going to pre be presented deals that you would actually genuinely be interested in investing in uh, because we know your behaviors, your, your investment habits, and we know how to market to you. So I think that, that personalization uh, is really the future of this space, and we're, we're kind of in the early innings here. So good things on both sides. Well, it seems like we're we're just at that ramp up stage, right? Where we only have a couple of years of really good data, and the future looks like it's it's going to be more, not less. And then secondly, there's going to be um, more sophisticated players down the road, like you said, some of these um, investment funds, et cetera, that actually want to share in this um, type of pipeline. And then thirdly. It seems like once the data is uh, refined and collected, then some of us, you know, um, potential investors are going to get more custom, tailored-made investment opportunities within the, the Reg A plus field. Um, it's, for me, it sounds exciting because, you know, you get a lot of different solicitations through Facebook. But I, I've yet to see a lot of things focused on a Reg A plus type of filing. And I think you're right. I think it's the wave of the future. So that way, instead of your broker or your investment manager, et cetera, with your retirement fund, you might actually be going to them saying, hey, I just saw ABC. What do you think of it? Just to get a bounce back because, I mean, think about prescription drugs, you know, how, how, how patients are going to their doctors asking them. Reg A plus might get to that point where now individual investors might be going to the broker going, hey, I think I'm going to start taking more more in charge of my investments through Reg A plus uh, type of filings. Um, we're not there yet, but definitely the future, I can definitely see how it can be tailored towards that, that type of um, audience. Now, I wanted to get into some of the weeds about duration, like how long does it really take to complete a Reg A plus filing? So on average, I believe the turnaround is around about 90 days historically um, between the time an issuer files a Form 1A with the SEC, maybe two, three rounds, uh, hopefully of comments, no more, and the time that the SEC qualifies the offer. Uh, we've seen it as quick as maybe 50, 55 days, and we've seen it as long as six months, uh, but the average is about three months, um, you know, 90 days or so. And I think, you know, largely it's going to depend on the securities attorney that is um, brought in to counsel and advise 
uh, and basically put the filing together for the issuer. And um, there are a number of attorneys in this space that, that have really kind of made their mark um, in, in the last uh, year and a half and have figured out how to do these filings very efficiently, quickly, low cost. Uh, in fact, the SEC put out a report in November saying across uh, you know, a number of filings, the average cost to file was about 50 grand. We've had clients, believe it or not, that have paid almost a quarter million dollars, Sonia, and m maybe those were the, the, the real pioneers at the very beginning when there was no benchmark for you know, what an appropriate cost or expected cost would be, but it's come down substantially. Uh, in my perspective, and not everybody likes this perspective, but I think the legal is kind of the commodity piece here. Uh, so is the accounting. You know, it, it shouldn't cost an issuer hundreds of thousands of dollars to file a form 1A with the SEC. And so some of the securities attorneys out there, they're disappointed they can't charge 150 or 200 grand, or maybe they can find an issuer willing to pay it. But realistically, that, that, that cost is being driven down because uh, there have been a number of individuals and firms who have very successfully been able to file these at a low cost, which is, of course, uh, in the best interest of the issuer. Right, because it goes back to the issuer to use those proceeds rather than, let's say, you know, a law firm. And you're right. It, it it's a matter of once this system gets developed, people will automate it. Um, so who knows? Maybe the attorneys are actually automating it on their end. So the hourly rate is beneficial because they figured out on the back end how to get these regulations or these filings out faster. So I do think technology will take a place in some of these services. Um, and at the end of the day, it goes back to shareholders and, and uh, it, it goes to the use of proceeds or the vision of that company. So for, for me, it's kind of a win-win. Um, now, I wanted to move on to uh, a CEO's role. So if they think that they are a good fit, meaning they're mature, they have customers, et cetera, what would you recommend? Okay, how should a CEO evaluate their marketing and PR provider when they're going through a Reg A plus filing? Well, I think the first, the first thing a CEO should do is identify um, whether or not a PR marketing firm is even necessary. So they're, uh, you know, look, we, we turn down a lot of business. We, we happen to see a lot of activity at the same time. Uh, we, 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 we don't see certain deal flow. There are some companies, Sonia, that can bypass the PR, bypass the crowd, and could uh, actually engage a traditional broker-dealer investment bank and, and attempt to use the Reg A exemption to raise capital in a traditional way. So if the issuer doesn't plan for a crowd campaign, or it, let's say is a biotech company or med device company, they don't have customers, they don't want to take that approach, then there may not be a need. But if it's a consumer products company, or if the issuer is taking a hybrid approach where they see value in having a diverse base of shareholders, they want institutional and the crowd to come in, you know, in the offer under one uh, uh, kind of offer in terms, then I think the first question that the CEO needs to ask that provider is, you know, who are your references? Where have you done this before? And, you know, the, the reality is that there are very few firms like ours at the moment in this space. And so we happen to get a lot of deal flow, which we're very fortunate to have because we, we have a number of references. We were one of the early leaders in this space. Um, and that's how I compete against other companies. I, I will tell that to the CEO. Hey, ask these other guys how many deals they've done. How much capital have they helped their clients raise? Who are their references? And, and that's kind of a, a question that should be asked 
of a, a service provider in general, whether it's a company like ours or an IT company that's upgrading or implementing a system, uh, things you're familiar with, Sonia, I, I think that's a key question. Who are your references? And then, oh, great, you know, so you say XYZ companies are referenced. Can I speak with their CEO? You know, um, the, you know, the cost to do the marketing is substantial, and so the CEO should really check the boxes and we oftentimes are asked for references. We oftentimes put our clients uh, in touch with prospective clients because that's just good business. And I think uh, the issuer really needs to do their due diligence on the partner they're bringing in. And I think references are probably the number one most critical um, criteria that they need to check the box for. Right. So in other words, don't be lazy. Don't don't assume anything that they've had that track record or they've done certain deals. It's really getting down to I need to connect with another human being that has done this with that partner and see what the results were. Right. What was it like working with, uh, you know, a certain exactly. firm? Um, and a, and I'm sure, you know, evaluating the different plans, et cetera. Um, well, Darren, I, we are wrapping up this interview and I'm confident our listeners gained just a ton of information on Reg A Plus for sure, and, and more importantly, the key success factors in running, funding, and expanding their business using Reg A Plus filings. So thank you, Darren, again for coming on our radio show. It was such a pleasure, Sonia. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. This is Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum, signing off.